Hi there. It's great to be with you. This is the last week in our Wisdom for Life series. We've been looking at the books of Proverbs and then Ecclesiastes and then Job and trying to mine them for wisdom, for the practical issues of life and also the very big questions about life and death and suffering and meaning and eternity. And it's been great going through these books over the last few months. We're finishing today by finishing the book of Job. So if you've got a Bible, do you want to turn to Job chapter 38? Job chapter 38. What you'll have seen so far in the last couple of weeks, if you've been with us, is in the book of Job, the question is very much focused on the question of suffering. And the book is about the issue of suffering. But what the book is doing really is to put on trial the question, is it the case that all bad things happen to us because we deserve them? And in some ways, that's what the book's doing. It's not really putting Job on trial or even God on trial. It's really putting that question on trial. Is it the case that every time something bad happens, it's because you deserve it? Or is perhaps there something else going on in the background that we don't see? And is there another explanation behind the question of suffering and evil and why it happens? And what the book's done so far in the last two weeks, we've seen with Jason and then with Andy, the book has presented us with some explanations of why two very common answers to the question, why is there suffering? Why two very common answers are wrong. And so there's two things that people often say, and they're both untrue. One of the answers people often give is they say, well, really, evil happens because it's like the yin and the yang. It's like a rival of cosmic powers. You call it dualism, that there is a good power, God, there's a bad power, Satan, and it's like a rivalry between the two as to who's going to win. And sometimes the evil force gets the upper hand and then we suffer. And the book of Job says, no, that's not the case at all. The devil is so under the boot of God, he has to go cringing and asking for permission from God to afflict anybody, including Job. The devil's not able to do anything at all without getting permission from God. He's a creature. He's not a rival God and you mustn't treat him like one. And so the yin and the yang view is debunked in chapters one and two. And then in the huge section that Andy took us through last week, we have another common answer gets debunked, which is really the view of karma, which is basically you get what you deserve. Now, as Andy said, there's there's some ways in which that's true, that there are some forms of suffering that if I jump off a three-story building and I get very badly hurt, break some limbs or even die, my suffering is a result of my choice. That's obviously true in a number, if many, many occasions, but it's not always the reason why we suffer. A lot of suffering, Job shows, is not because someone's done something wrong. And that Job's friends think that's the answer, and they spend 30 chapters trying to prove it. You must have done something. But in the end, the book of Job says, no, that's often not true. Karma is not a biblical view. It's not the case that all suffering happens because of your sin. There may well be other explanations There may be other things you don't know about. It might be a mystery, but it is not always true that people suffer for their own sin. But as we enter Job 38, we are expecting, in a way, God to finally settle the answer. We've had two wrong answers, and now we're expecting, as God speaks at the beginning of this final section of the book, we're expecting God to give the answer. And we're kind of waiting there going, yeah, come on, God, give us the explanation. What is the reason why some people suffer then? And when God speaks... It's amazing. He says something that none of us are expecting. We are expecting him to give answers to us. And it turns out that he has questions for us that he wants us to answer. 
So Job, if you like, gets to this point and he's, in a sense, I suppose, waiting to cross-examine God. He's thinking, I want to be able to put some questions to that guy and get some answers. But it turns out that God ends up cross-examining him and us, by extension, in the final five chapters of this book. I don't know if you've seen the uh, fantastic HBO miniseries Chernobyl, starring our very own Josh Smith, who goes to the Lisa. He's in the show. Fantastic, fantastic show. Probably the best thing I've seen on TV in the last five years. It's amazing drama. Not for the faint-hearted, but it's brilliant. But at the end of that, I won't give it away, but one of the fascinating things that happens as the show is coming to a conclusion is that we are expecting, by the end, the scientists responsible for the nuclear power plant, to be on trial and explain what they did wrong. And one of the clever things the show does is it turns the tables and basically leaves us not putting the scientists on trial, but in many ways putting the Russian state on trial. And as we get to the end of the show, we think, hang on a second, I thought you were going to be prosecuting those guys, but it turns out the tables have been turned and you are effectively on trial and you're being held accountable rather than them for what's taken place. It's a fascinating shift that takes place. And you get something of that at the end of Job, where you're thinking, this is going to be a book in which God finally steps into the dock and defends himself. But that's not what happens. And instead, God steps in and says, I'm not the defendant here. You are. I've got some questions for you. And as we begin to read this chapter, we're going to see what they are and see what God says and how Job responds and then what God does. What God says, how Job responds and then what God does. We're going to read edited highlights, if you like, from Job 38 to 42, but we're going to begin at Job 38 and verse 1. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you will make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band? and prescribed limits for it, and set bars and doors, and said, Thus far shall you come, and no further, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. Can you lift up your voice to the clouds, that a flood of waters may cover you? Can you send forth lightnings, that they may go and say to you, Here we are? Who has let the wild donkey go free? Who has loosed the bonds of the swift donkey? to whom I have given the arid plain for his home and the salt land for his dwelling place. He scorns the tumult of the city. He hears not the shouts of the driver. He ranges the mountains as his pasture and he searches after every green thing. The wings of the ostrich wave proudly, but are they the pinions and plumage of love? For she leaves her eggs to the earth and lets them be warmed on the ground, forgetting that a foot may crush them and that the wild beasts may trample them. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once and I will not answer. 
twice, but I will proceed no further. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you will make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook or press down his tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you will make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. So we've been waiting all this time for what God is going to say and his response is totally unexpected. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. And for four chapters, God's response basically takes that exact form. Did you create this? Do you understand that? Do you know how this works, Job? Do you know every time that happens? It talks about the creation of the world. Uh, verses 1 to 18 of chapter 38. Who shut in the sea with doors? Have you commanded the morning since your days began? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? He talks about the creation of the weather. Have you entered the storehouses of the snow? Who's cleft a channel for the torrents of rain? Can you send forth lightning? And they say, here we are. So he talks about the creation of the world, creation of the weather. He talks about the creation of weird animals. I mean, this is the hilarious, but kind of surreal almost at one point. He starts talking about donkeys. And ostriches and say, what about the wild donkey then? Look at him. He's kind of weird. Do you know about the birthing cycles of mountain goats, Job? Can you tame a wild donkey? Or do you run around after and go, here donkey, here donkey. You just run away and go, how does it, Job, do you understand? Can you figure this all out? What about the ostrich? What about a wild ox? Have you noticed that when an ostrich lays her eggs, she just leaves them on the ground for someone else to tread on? What do you think about that? Can you fathom these things? Do you understand how they work? And then having talked about the creation of weird animals, Job speaks and then God comes back again and says, well, what about weirder animals? What about behemoth? What about Leviathan? Can you take Leviathan by the eyes or pierce his nose with a snare or draw him out with a fish hook? Can you do those things? <laughs> Meanwhile, all of us modern readers are going, I don't even know what behemoth and Leviathan are. No, of course I don't know how to tame them or make them do what I want. There are wild animals out there in the land and the sea, and I don't know how to tame them, and I wouldn't even try. And God asks Job question after question after question that effectively say, you know, you've got questions for me. Well, okay, I've got some questions for you. Let's talk about oceans and thunderstorms and donkeys for a moment. Do you understand how they all work? Did you create all of them? So why on earth does God say this? Why, why in the longest book in the Bible and one of the most powerful statements in any literature of the problem of suffering, does the answer when it finally comes take the form of questions like this? Three years ago, my dad was at my brother's house and he overheard my sister-in-law talking to her son, who's my nephew. Uh, he was about seven at the time. 
And my dad, she was in another room talking to my nephew, seven-year-old Joss, and but my dad's in another room, but he can overhear, suddenly overhears and falls about laughing because he overhears my sister-in-law saying to her son, Josiah, I will not hear another word about you getting married until you've got a job. And dad just falls about laughing. He's like, what? Why not this? What's happened? And he kind of goes in and asks, like, what are we, why are you talking to him about not being able to talk about marriage until he's got a job? And it turns out that what had happened was that my seven-year-old nephew had been talking for the last week or so, had been going on and on about when he could get married which seven-year-old boys sometimes do. And he just kept going, well, I want to get married, and when am I going to get married, and when am I going to have a wife, and all this. And eventually, Hannah said, that, well, the, the best way of making sense of this is I just need to say, okay, you don't get married until you have a job. That's the explanation she used. She said, until you've got a job, you're not ready to get married. That was the way you sometimes pacify a seven-year-old boy. Effectively, like, you're seven. You don't have a job yet. So, no, you are not yet old enough to understand the mysteries of marriage, and it's way beyond your level of maturity, and you're just going to have to trust me on that. And in a way, that's what God is saying to Job here. It's like, I get why you're asking about the problem of evil, Job, but seriously, you haven't even created a thunderstorm yet. You haven't even tamed the wild donkey yet. You don't even know what Leviathan is or how to tame him yet. So, yeah, the problem of evil is way outside your level of maturity. It's like saying, I'm not going to let you hear another word about marriage until you've got a job. It's like, no, you cannot understand the problem of evil. You haven't even told the lightning where to go or created storehouses for the snow. So this is just above your pay grade, Job, and you're going to have to trust me. And that, in a sense, is the very surprising answer that comes to the problem of evil at the end of the book of Job. And so that's what God says. God, when he finally speaks, is really spending four chapters trying to get Job to realize that he is smaller than he thinks and that God is bigger than he thinks and that therefore Job's ability to fathom the mysteries of why every evil thing happened might not be quite as advanced as he thinks they are. And there's a message in there for all of us. Now that's what God says. So how does Job respond? Perhaps before we look at that, how would you respond? How are you responding right now as you hear that? As you hear, wow, you just don't understand. This is too big for you. How do you respond? And the way that we answer that question tells us quite a lot about ourselves and about our culture. Because my guess is that today the vast majority of people in London would not accept God's reply. When God says, well, let me ask you, when did you create a thunderstorm? We'd say, that's not good enough, God. You still owe me an explanation. That's, I suspect, how we feel, even if we don't say it. Interestingly, that's not the response that most human beings in history have given. Most human beings in history have accepted that to some degree, if there is a God, he must have reasons beyond our understanding. We wouldn't expect to know why God had done everything he'd done, and we wouldn't see the problem of evil as a reason not to believe in God. But as European people and the people they influenced began to see ourselves as enlightened, advanced people and capable of solving problems ourselves, we began to think that the problem of evil was a reason not to believe in God. And for many people in our city today, it still is. And one strange result of that is actually, you might have noticed this before, but the less people suffer, the more they see suffering as a reason to disbelieve in God. I don't mean that at an individual level, but at a social, cultural level, that's true. The less a society or a generation suffers, the more of a problem they think suffering is for believing in a good God. C.S. Lewis 
put it this way. He said, I want you to reflect for five minutes on the fact that all the great religions were first preached and long practiced in a world without chloroform. In other words, without anesthetics. The amount of pain that most people who founded all the world religions and all of their worshippers for thousands of years, they lived in far more pain than we do. And yet we see suffering as an objection to the existence of God and they didn't. What's going on? I think what's going on is that our instinct is to argue and reason and complain and cross-examine God until we get an explanation. Job's response is different. God speaks to him out of the whirlwind and he responds in silence and repentance. He responds in silence. Chapter 40, verses 4 and 5. Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I, I put my hand over my mouth. I've spoken once and I won't answer twice and I will proceed no further. He responds by just being quiet before God, recognising his majesty and Job's relative insignificance. And he also responds with repentance. Chapter 42 and verse 2. I know that you can do all things and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. If God is big enough to yell at and grumble at and complain at about the problem of suffering, and he is, then he is also big enough to have reasons for suffering and the existence of evil that I don't understand. Job sees God and it brings him to a recognition of the mystery and acceptance of his lack of understanding. It brings him to silence and repentance before a righteous and holy and almighty and yet loving God. And as he comes to that place of repentance, he sees what many of us miss, which is actually that God doesn't owe us an answer. Even though we may find it hard to accept, there is a mystery here that you and I, this side of eternity, may never plumb the depths of. And interestingly, Ecclesiastes, which we looked at a few weeks back, does just the same thing. Ecclesiastes 5 verse 2 says, God's in heaven and you are on earth, so let your words be few. Yeah, there are times you have to realise, okay, I love having God as my father. I love knowing him. I love the intimacy I get. But if I end up putting him in the dock, if I end up saying, God, you owe me some answers, I've got to listen to myself and think, hang on a second, what am I saying when I'm speaking to the God who created whether the wild donkey or behemoth or the stars or the thunderstorms? I realise I am not in a position to know everything he knows. And I need to accept that mystery is the price you pay for communion with the holy God. So we've seen what God says. Have you created everything, Job? And we've seen how Job responds with silence and repentance. And if the book stopped there, I think it would be a powerful lesson on the problem of suffering. But the book doesn't stop there. God's justice and his love demand that it not stop there. It ends with the intervention of God in vindication and mercy and restoration. I think if it stopped at the end of chapter 41, it would be a powerful treatment of the problem of evil and the reason we need to accept mystery. But that's not what God does because his love and his mercy and his justice come pouring out in chapter 42 in vindication, mercy and restoration. Vindication, that means showing that Job was right. This is what he says in verse 7 of chapter 42. My anger, he says to the friend, my anger burns against you, Eliphaz, and your two friends, for you haven't spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. 
In other words, as the book ends, God says, Job was in the right all along. You guys were saying, you must have done something wrong. And Job was saying, no, I haven't, I haven't. And I'm now siding with Job and saying, he was right. This did not come upon him because he did something wrong. And the chance are, if you're saying, is my suffering because I've done something wrong? The chance are that the message of Job is spoken to you too. It's not because of you. There may be other things going on. But it is not necessarily. And often it is not nothing to do with what you have done wrong. And Job's friends, the accusers who are saying, it's all your fault. Job's saying, no, it's not. And God says, yeah, Job's right. It's not because of you. You mustn't think. Effectively, the book ends with a vindication of the righteous sufferer. It says, this person was right. He was right all along, even when others were accusing him. And God finishes the book by lifting Job up and acknowledging he was in the right. He finishes with vindication. He finishes, secondly, with mercy. Look at verse 8. He says to the friends, And my servant Job, he's going to pray for you. For I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. Isn't that extraordinary mercy? Having put up with these guys' rambling explanations for all this time, and then said you were wrong and Job was right, the very next thing God says to them is, but don't worry, because I am gonna, he's going to pray for you. And I'm going to treat you not as your sins deserve. I'm not going to treat you according to your foolishness. I'm going to treat you in accordance with the things Job is praying for you. And that's going to make all the difference. And then God finishes with vindication, with mercy, and finally with restoration. Verse 10. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. For 41 chapters... Job has been a righteous sufferer, crying out to God for deliverance. And everybody, his wife, his children, his Satan, sorry, his wife, his friends, Satan himself, they've all been accusing him. But something happens at the end of the book that turns everything the right way up. The righteous sufferer is vindicated. He prays for and saves his arrogant friends. And he is restored to honour and wealth and strength. Does that remind you of anybody? Jesus is the true and better Job. Jesus is a righteous sufferer who suffers injustices all the way through, but especially at the end of his life, and gets accused by his enemies, by his friends, by his own family, by the devil himself, and he never puts a foot wrong. He suffers unimaginable torment and he also, like Job, cries out to God the Father for deliverance. But something happens at the end which turns everything the right way up. The righteous sufferer walks out of the tomb. He's vindicated. He is declared to have been in the right all along by his conquest of death. And he is exalted to the place of honour and strength and wisdom and glory and power and might forever and ever. And to this day, the righteous sufferer, Jesus, the Lord, continues to pray for and to save his arrogant friends like me and like you. And God accepts his prayer not to treat me and you and Eliphaz and Zophar and Bildad according to our foolishness and our sin, but according to Jesus' righteousness instead. When Christians face the problem of evil, and we do and we always will, we don't cross-examine God. We examine God on the cross. 
And when we see him there, we may find all sorts of questions surging within us. Why this? Why that? But one of the things we know is not the explanation is that God doesn't love us and that God doesn't care about us. As we examine God on the cross, we see that in all things, God and in Christ has been righteous. He has been merciful and he is going to restore all things to the glory of God. Friends, whatever you are suffering or wrestling with or working through at the moment, Jesus has been there and Jesus is praying for you that your strength may not fail and that ultimately you and I are not treated according to our folly but according to his righteousness. When we face with evil, we don't cross-examine God. We examine God on the cross. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for sending your son to the cross to experience the fullness of of awfulness and terror and horror and the judgment of sin that I deserve and that we deserve for experiencing the anguish and torment that comes in this world when evil does its worst and yet having taken it all upon himself for rising again to new life, for destroying the power of death, sin and the devil himself and for giving us new life in his name and for continuing to this day to pray for us that we might be treated according to his behaviour and rather than ours. Thank you, Lord God, for Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for the gospel. And I pray for all of us who are suffering and floundering that you would empower us to take refuge in the goodness of what you have already done for us and that we would be blessed in his name as we approach the cross, as we sing and reflect on the goodness of what you've done, as we consider the Lamb and the wondrous cross on which he died. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.